He is an award-winning filmmaker, author, and musician who calls Georgetown, Kentucky home. Michael Crisp first moved to Kentucky when he was four years old and ever since has fallen in love with the history and the stories that make this state so interesting. You may know some of his works. He's written nine books, including It's a Kentucky Thing Y'all Wouldn't Understand, and has produced films, including a very moving film detailing one of the country's worst bus tragedies, the Floyd County bus crash of 1958, The Very Worst Thing. From WKYT Podcast, this is Uniquely Kentucky. I'm your host, Amber Philpotts. Michael Crisp, welcome to Uniquely Kentucky. Great, thank you for having me. How are you today? Wonderful. We are coming off the anniversary of this bus crash. It was back on February 28th. Um, let's talk about this for folks that might not be very familiar with this crash. It certainly is still a talker after all these years. It is. Um, a lot of people aren't nowadays extremely familiar with the bus wreck because it happened 61 years ago. When you think uh, terrible school bus crashes in Kentucky, a lot of people immediately think of the Carrollton crash of 1988. But in 1958, there was a crash in eastern Kentucky that was just as tragic, and it had many, many overtones and many stories within the story uh, with it. So basically what happened was on February 28, 1958, a school bus carrying 48 children on the way to school, as well as their driver, uh, rounded a bend on Old U.S. Route four, uh, 23, and they encountered a tow truck that was in the middle of the road trying to pull a vehicle out of a ditch. As they encountered the tow truck, the driver was unable to swerve and completely miss the truck. So he hit the tow truck, and then the bus plummeted 80 feet into the Big Sandy River. As soon as it hit the Big Sandy River, within seconds, the bus was uh, pretty much submerged. Fortunately, 22 children managed to swim to shore and live through the ordeal, but unfortunately, 26 children, as well as their driver, perished in the accident. What made you want to tell this story after all of these years? What sort of drew you to it? Well, my mom and her family are from Floyd County, mm -hmm. and I remember growing up in Georgetown in the 70s, once in a while we would pull out these old newspapers and these old clippings that would uh, tell the story of the Prestonsburg-Floyd County school bus wreck, and we'd look at the portraits of the victims and just talk about them a little bit, and my mom was pretty sure that we were distantly related to one of the families that lost some children. So it was always something that was pretty fascinating to me. And then uh, through the years, as I started to get into filmmaking, that's where I decided to kind of have that be the first film I ever did. You went back and you were able to, you know, round up a lot of um, the old newspaper clippings, a lot of people that could talk, and you even found some folks that were very connected to this bus crash. Talk to me just about that process of sort of tracking everyone down and getting their version of that story. Yeah, so while we're making the film, it had been about 50 or 51 years since the crash. And one of the more surprising things that I had learned was out of the 22 children that survived the crash at that time, 21 of them were still alive. So 
as we're making our wish list of people that we want to interview for the film, one of the first things that we did was speak to an author who had written a book about the tragedy. And fortunately, she had been able to put us in contact with a lot of the uh, families and people that might have a chance to talk with us. And her first uh, conversations with us essentially entailed, you know, Mike, not everybody's going to want to talk to you. Most everybody is going to, you know, tell you this is just still too fresh in their mind. And I thought, well, it's 50-some years. I mean, they'd be ready to talk. And that wasn't the case. I got so many no's from so many different people involved in this story because they just didn't want to share their story. But fortunately, four of the remaining 21 people on the bus allowed us to do on-camera interviews. And everybody that we spoke to had amazing stories about being on the bus and swimming to safety and the emotions and the survivor's guilt and the things that they went through. And and then there were also a lot of other additional um, interviews that were also very, very powerful. Um, A man named John Crum was getting ready to get on the school bus, and at the last minute, one of his friends who did get on the school bus uh, told him, hey, you remember we've got a test today, this morning, did you study for it? John Crum said, no, I completely forgot. Well, John Crum turned around and went home. He was 10 to 15 feet away from getting on the bus. So as he's walking home, within a few minutes, he hears this horrible crashing and clanging, and he turns around, and he sees the bus going into the river. And not only did John lose a lot of people that day, he lost his best friend who told him about the test that morning. And that's one of many, many stories uh, in the film that we talk about, and it's just incredible. So John is the last living eyewitness mm-hmm. to the crash out of the students that were not on the bus, and then we still have a lot of interviews with people that were on the bus. Eastern Kentucky is such a tight-knit community and many times in places like where this happened, and in this case, there were people that lost all of their children, right? Yeah, that's true. There were two families that are most known for this tragedy as far as losing their uh, all of their children. The Goble family is one of them, and they only had three children, and the parents lost all three children in the wreck. Another family, uh, the Gerald family, lost their only two children in the rag. The Gerald kids were named Bucky and Katie, and they were brother and sister, and they were teenagers, and they were very well thought of in school. Everybody seemed to love them. Uh, the um, classmates that we spoke to said that all of the girls had crushes on Bucky, and most of the boys had crushes on his sister, Katie. And they were very popular, and both of them were lost in the accident. Um, the Goble story is very, very tragic on, on several levels as well. Mr. and Mrs. Goble um, were, he, he was a shopkeeper in town. She was a teacher. And with the school bus accident, as soon as it happened, within a few minutes, word got to Mrs. Gerald, or uh, to Mrs. Goble. Mm-hmm. And she roamed the riverbanks just waiting and hoping for word that one of her children would be safe. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And her husband, Mr. Goble, 
technically found all three of his children. So that was another awful situation. And it took several days. This was not an easy recovery process at all, right? Yeah, that's correct. When the bus went in, the bus was missing for pretty much right at about three days. The waters were over 30 feet deep. They had surpassed flood stage. They were very just kind of dirty and muddy and the Navy divers that were brought in and the National Guard and the people helping to try and locate the bus couldn't find the bus. So finally uh, in early March they locate it, they pull it to shore and of the 27 victims only 15 are in the bus so it took another two months to find the remaining 12 victims. I can't imagine at that time just agonizing and this was a really uh, big spectacle. I mean there were a lot of media members that that came to Eastern Kentucky to cover this story. I can't imagine the countless people that were here covering this at that time. Yeah, uh, big uh, companies, Life Magazine sent reporters there, all the newspapers. There weren't a lot of TV stations at the time but they sent uh, reporters there and the Floyd County Times, the local newspaper, uh, there was a, a comment or two in the film about how it kind of became a, somewhat of a national office because all of the local newspapers and Life Magazine and the New York Times, they were allowed to set up temporary uh, offices there and use them in order to dispatch the news to, uh, to the rest of the country. When you start to kind of pick apart this story, there become some oddities, if you will, throughout this story, right? And the number 27 becomes sort of significant in a way. Yeah, it is. Um, the school bus number was number 27. There were 27 fatalities. And then the school bus driver was 26 years old, but his birthday was the next day, so he was going to turn 27. And then by the time they finally found the last victim, 72 days had elapsed, and that's the number 27 backwards. Now, whatever the fascination is with the number 27, mm -hmm. it is really, really a big deal even to this day in Floyd County. They have not, nor will they ever have, another school bus number 27. The superstitious aspects of it and how it just brings back too many painful memories uh, is still seared in their memory. And it sort of has an, an eerie correlation with the Carrollton bus crash, right? Yeah, it does. Um, the Carrollton bus crash also had 27 victims. And uh, not that it, uh, you know, could actually has a direct mm -hmm. correlation, but it still makes you think. And it conjures up visions of, okay, what does this number mean? And we did a little bit of research uh, on numerology and a little bit of biblical research looking mm -hmm. into the number 27, and we really couldn't find anything that we could correlate and put into our film and kind of give reason to it. We should say that this tragedy was horrific, but there were some, if you will, good things to come out of it. Meaning in Floyd County, Mr. Goebel, correct, uh, came up with the first uh, sort of rescue unit, if you will, after this tragedy. He did. At the time, you had uh, police and fire departments, but you didn't really have a lot of water rescue organizations. So Mr. Goebel, even though he had lost the three children, a way to help him deal with this tragedy and with what he was going through was to co-found the Floyd County Emergency Rescue Squad. He did it with a gentleman named Graham Burchett, and those two put together a team of individuals who 
would go out and from that point forward assist and lead in uh, water rescues and other types of rescues. They're an award-winning organization, and since that horrible day 61 years ago, they've saved countless lives from uh, people that have been in in situations a little bit similar to this. After you take on this task of, of wanting to make this film and this documentary, um, that is a huge task. I, I can't imagine the hours that you put into it, the, the amount of film that you had to look through, interviews you had to look through. Talk to me about that process and then that moment when you finally debut it in 2010 in front of a packed house um, in the Mountain Arts Center. And what was the reaction from folks? Well, well, it took nine months to make the film, and there were times that it felt like it was 90 months making it. I can't, I still can't believe it only took nine months. And as we're making it, uh, as we're getting kind of close to it and, and watching the very end of it a few weeks before we're going to debut it, we're wondering what the reaction will be because this is a very, very personal subject to everyone there. Uh, we knew there would be family members uh, that lost relatives in, in the tragedy present at the film. We had a lot of the people there who were in the film present at the premiere. So it's uh, February 2010 at the Mountain Arts Center, a thousand seats, but there's a thousand and forty that have made it in, and there's 200 people that have been turned away. Uh, the thousand and forty, we're told that evening, set an, a record of the largest independent film premiere in the state of Kentucky. Throughout the years, we've been told that that record still is in effect, and so we're just blown away right there. This is our first film. We picked a very important subject, and now we're getting ready to debut it. And as we play the film, we give a speech. I think there's a slight bit of applause, and then the gentleman I made the film with, his name's Andrew Moore out of Cincinnati, he and I filter to the back, and we watch the entire movie from the back row. Now, Andrew and I had seen the film a couple hundred times, but we watched, and it was like seeing it for a first time because you could hear a pin drop as a thousand-plus people are watching and just seeing all these images and hearing these interviews and seeing these photographs that most people had never seen before. The closest they had come to with with this uh, was the author who had released a book that had a few of the pictures in there, but this was the first time that many folks had gotten to see pictures and hear firsthand accounts of what had happened. And at the end of the film, they bring us back up on stage, and there's just a long standing ovation that felt nine mm-hmm. months long mm-hmm. uh, as well. And we we knew we had done right by everyone in Floyd County. It was very a very personal story, and we're glad we got it right. I think for any of us that tell stories for a living, I think they all kind of become our baby in some capacity, whether a shortened version like what I do or a long form like you do. And I think there's always that moment where you don't breathe until the folks that the story's about or whatever you know entity you're trying to convey in the story, they're profiling then you can breathe once they've seen it. Yeah, and especially in that long-form format, our film was about 90 minutes long, and there are a lot of choices that you make as a filmmaker to put in there. And one that was a big relief that we had debated perhaps cutting, but in toward the end of the film, 
the students in one of the classes uh, were forbidden to attend, uh, by decree of the principal, one of their classmates' funerals, and it happened to be Katie Gerald's funeral, who we discussed a few minutes ago. Uh, the teacher of the class went to the principal and then went behind his back and announced to her class, uh, we've been told by our principal that we are not allowed to go to Katie's funeral today, but she was our classmate, and we loved her, and we are going. So I want everybody to put on your coats, and we're going to march out of here like good children. You're going to be the best you ever were. And we go out there, and they went to the funeral, and then they came back, and the the little bit of humorous moment with that was we closed the interview with uh, the our interviewee saying, and I don't believe to this day uh, Principal Woodrow Burchett ever knew we attended that funeral. <laughs> and here you hear just everyone, that was one of the few mo- times that you heard applause and laughter, and it was just such a nice relief instead of giving everybody 90 minutes of grief you could actually have a little bit more of a humanistic element to the Sometimes story. Sometimes that little bit of laughter is so very, very important. Not only did you tackle this story, but you, you have done a couple of other things as well. Um, talk to me about when you were researching this story, you had a lot of people telling you, what about this story? So you're not even done with one <laughs> one film that you're trying to do, and people are talking to you about maybe this other story. What is that? So Floyd County between 1949 and 1973 or so has had a lot of very unusual tragic stories so uh, one of which happens to be the story of Merle Baldridge and her first name is spelled Muriel but everybody that knew her called her Merle and she was a 17 year old cheerleader at Prestonsburg High School in 1949 and as we're making the film about the school bus wreck, half of our interviewees would would ask me, are you ever going to do anything about Merle Baldridge? And by the fourth or fifth time I heard that question, I said, well, I guess I better find out who that is. And I asked around, and turns out it was a huge, huge story, uh, not only in eastern Kentucky, but throughout Appalachia, of this 17-year-old cheerleader who died mysteriously. Um, the, in a nutshell, what happened was she had gone out with her girlfriends one night. They saw a movie, and they went to a carnival. And at the end of the night, in, and this was June of, of 49, they're walking her back to her house, and she lived across this uh, big spooky bridge. And they asked if we could you know, walk you across the bridge, and she goes, oh, I've done this a hundred times. I'll see you guys tomorrow. I'm just going to go ahead and go. That was the last time she was ever seen alive. The next morning, she was found beaten to death, and her body was found pretty much underneath the bridge uh, on the banks. And this bridge and this riverbank is probably five or six miles from where the school bus went in. So uh, that set off just one of the most controversial uh, cult cases and a bizarre trial, unusual interrogations that some of which even involve truth serum, and we really get in and dive into the story. It's a wonderful whodunit, and that was probably the first book that I ever released that kind of put me on the map as an author. So um, Floyd County, those two stories are just really, really still even important to these this day. 
And so important to you for mm -hmm. you to listen to the people that are talking to you because obviously those are things that are important to them. So you didn't just say, well, I'm not really worried about that one. This one's important to me. And going back, I think, and following up with it, it's probably really important to the people in that area. Yeah. Um, sometimes Eastern Kentucky gets overlooked or uh, made fun of or ignored. And I don't feel it that way. Um, that's where my mom's family is from. I, I value everyone's input and opinions. And when, when you're able to take a suggestion like that and turn it into a project and then within a year say, you know, here's that suggestion you gave me. Well, here is the book. And, and the book was pretty well embraced. And I think people love that story because it, it does, it has everything. It has mystery and it has this beautiful young lady in it. And it's a bit scandalous when you go through some of, as the court proceedings and some of the things that, that came about from that. So I think it's like the right thing for people. They just really enjoy that whole story of it. Yeah. Talk to me about, so you've gotten your film out. And then you sort of have people come forward that, well, it's been a few years. They have some more information for you. They have something for you for this bust tragedy. What do people bring to you? Yeah, so with a documentary film, the, the three or four elements that every good documentary film has are interviews, pictures, maybe some music and a few other different things. But one of the big things that you almost always want to have with a historical subject is video. And we had no video whatsoever of the search and rescue attempts for the uh, school bus. So we still released the film. It still did really well, and it accomplished everything we wanted it to do. But about a year and a half later, a gentleman came forward in Prestonsburg and he said, I've got home movies of the search and rescue. He donated them to the film and they were gorgeous color home movies of boats going up and down the river looking for the bus, uh, the people of the, of the city just walking around, interacting with each other. Um, just to see the river and to see the, the bridge and see all these amazing things. So then a couple of years later, a guy from Hazard says, guess what, we've gone through my grandfather's uh, stuff and he's got video of the, of the search and rescue. We look at his footage and he's got a distant shot of the bus being pulled out of the water. It was amazing. By this point, so many things had happened. There had been probably a dozen amazing, interesting stories that had happened since the release of the film that we re-edited the first film and then came out with a sequel to the film that just basically talked about the impact that the film had made in Floyd County. And then now a couple months ago, a guy comes forward with more breathtaking color video and this uh, gentleman is a school teacher named Talmadge Collins, really great guy, lives in Louisville, and his grandfather is from Eastern Kentucky and they found home movies uh, of the bus being pulled out and it's there are close-ups of the bus being pulled out and, and lots of other just great images. I can't even begin to, it would take all day to tell you and just geek out over all these <laughs> wonderful video things from 1958. They are haunting, but also mm. so incredible to watch. When you sent me just a small clip of what this new film shows, it really is captivating to see. And to also think about the fact that, that people during that kind of tragedy going on had the wherewithal 
to preserve this in some capacity. Do you mm -hmm. find that, that more and more people are finding sort of gems like this at home because now we have the ability to find them and put them onto some type of digital format? Yeah, I think the big thing is, is back in the 50s, uh, unlike today, now something like this happens, everybody's got a cell phone, so you're going to have a lot of video. But back in the day, only a handful of people had these 8mm video cameras. And to, to the fact that three people, at least, and maybe more, brought out their video camera and shot so many interesting images of history unfolding right there before our eyes. Um, the author of the book that assisted us with our film, she, I, I always love her line about this story. Uh, that the fact that this is like American graffiti meets the Titanic. This really is like the Titanic in Kentucky. It's huge news. And that in order to see news and, and everything unfold with these raw color videos, it's just astounding. So now you're, re you're should I say, re-releasing again. Mm -hmm. So this will be the third go at this. And it really has, I mean, I know the second time you said, it took on a life of its own, but it really has grown into something much larger now, right? It really has, and the thing about this, it's, it's wonderful to be considered one of the people that are the, that's the caretaker of this story. I'm not the only caretaker of the story. Fortunately, um, the author, Jackie Branham Hall, who worked with us on the film, she, uh, people will sometimes call her if they have, if they discover an interesting picture or something, but even though our film has been out almost 10 years now, if somebody finds something just breathtaking in their attic, like old video or something, they just track me down and and find me, and then we do something else with the film. And and since that film, it's been almost ten years. I've I've directed and produced eight or nine other documentaries, and that one has a special place mm. in my heart. But I've always said that with any of my stories, whenever somebody comes forward with something really amazing, I will open that story back up rework the project and, and then put it out there just so everybody can can see it and we can share with it. When can people maybe expect to see that one, this new one? Yeah, in a, probably about a month and a half okay. or so. I'm I'm still editing all of the new footage. That is if no one there. else comes forward with something else, right? <laughs> that's, that's then you right. have to put the hold on that. So in, a, so in about a month, you say. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. On top of all of this amazing work, you also write books and your latest one, it's a Kentucky thing. You all wouldn't understand. I love this book. I've now had time to actually dive into it and go through it. And if you are a Kentuckian like me, born and raised, there are so many, so many one-liners in here that you can appreciate. But you go one step further and you figure out why we say those things, right? Where did this yeah. come from? All right. So over the summer, my wife and I are having lunch at our house and she happens to have a copy of a magazine that might have been Southern Living or something like that. And there was an article in there talking about old Southern phrases and how charming they are and if they're still used today. And we leafed through that magazine and just laughed and laughed and laughed at these great phrases, almost all of which we had heard at some point. But, uh, and she suggested that I do a book about them and, and kind of branded as a Kentucky thing. So within just hours, we had the title of the book, and I, I knew the format, and I knew I wanted to do a lot of origin stories behind the phrases. 
and what a joy it was to put this book together and to and to revisit these phrases. One of the best parts about all of these phrases are just about everybody has one or two that they use and at least one or two that conjure up special memories from 20, 30, 50 years ago. And there are so many in there that as I hear, I think of that specific moment, why it was said, who was there, uh, so many things, and I know you probably. I'm transported in time immediately by several because it it does. I can I can picture the person that's saying it, the exact moment of where I was, and usually what context we were in for that. It's really incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, there uh, with these on researching them, I had uh, I I put together a list, and then there were probably five or ten that I let some close friends of mine. Uh, contribute and uh, coincidentally a a real good friend of mine named Nathan Benge is from the London area and right before I released the book he he told me he goes you got to put untelling in there and I said untelling I don't think I've heard of that he goes oh it's big down here and I said well what does it what does it mean and he goes oh well it's kind of like no telling and uh, and so he explained it to me, and I thought, well, okay, this is good. I'm going to put it in there. And then the very first radio interview I ever did about this, we took some calls, and one of the first callers asked if Untellin was in there, and they hadn't read the book yet. And I said, and I told Nathan later that day, I said, your suggestion was great because. It's a, a it caller called in. Clearly. Yeah, people loved it. <laughs> One that we enjoy around here between myself and Chris Bailey and uh, Jim Caldwell is Ewans. We we use <laughs> Ewans quite a bit, and a lot of people don't always understand us, but we like to use that one. And it means something to each one of us. So, <laughs> very good. Michael, where do you get your love of telling and sharing stories? Because you have such a passion for it. You know, when I was young, I was always encouraged by uh, especially my mother, but also my friends. They they always loved that I enjoyed a good story, and I loved to tell a good story as well. And I've always been fascinating or fascinated with history, and I love history that's very accessible and digestible. One of my favorite nowadays uh, Facebook follows is a guy named Sam Terry. He's got a Facebook page called Sam Terry's Kentucky. And daily I look at his page and he writes these amazing, digestible, quick, Mm -hmm. interesting Kentucky stories. Well, years ago, that's what I was trying to do. And uh, so I'm always inspired by people like Sam and people that... Uh, in Kentucky, and even people like yourself that tell stories and and share with the Commonwealth everything that you know that there is here in Kentucky. So I, I just always am excited because you never really know what's next. You never know. I think that is that's the exciting part of what we do is no day is the same, and I always feel like I never know what I'm going to learn, and that's what I appreciate about what we do the most in telling stories. Two mm-hmm. questions as we finish up here that I always ask everyone that is on Uniquely Kentucky: um, books. Are there any books that are important? Important to you, or have been uh, life-changing to you, or something you're reading right now? Yeah. So, um, aside from your own, we yeah. Can say. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I love so many different books, but I'm such a fan of nonfiction books and especially Kentucky history books. I've read a lot of uh, Daniel Boone books. 
Uh, I've read so many that the titles kind of um, blend together to where I can't definitively mm -hmm. say one particular title. But um, I'd say my favorite book of the last 10 years that I read is a book called Trapped by Roger Brucker that tells the story of a Kentucky man named Floyd Collins who in 1925 got trapped mm -hmm. in a cave near Mammoth Cave. It's a brilliantly written book. Uh, we worked with Roger to put out a documentary film about Floyd Collins a few years ago, and that might be one of my favorite ones. Um, I just don't get a chance to read a lot of fiction, and uh, but I, I'd love to change that. I, I love stories of all types, and so hopefully, well, you're a guy that likes a real story and a and the person that's behind it. So I see why you're drawn to the nonfiction for sure. We call this uniquely Kentucky. Michael Crisp, what makes Kentucky so unique, you think? Without a doubt, the fact that we have so many varied things to do and so many experiences all within the confines of our state. Here we are in central Kentucky, and you can go a couple hours east and be amongst the, um, the coal mines and Loretta Lynn and just the beauty of the mountains. You can go three or four hours west and be out there around the hills and the caves. You can go north and be close to Cincinnati and have just those great water-oriented experiences around Covington and Newport. And you can go south and see the home of, or the restaurant of Colonel Sanders. And there are just literally hundreds of different interesting adventures and things you can do in Kentucky that make it just an incredible place. And I hope that just some of the work that I do and some of the stories that I tell will encourage Kentuckians to seek out places in Kentucky for vacations and weekend getaways and things like we that. We are blessed and we do take it for granted that we don't always get out and explore right what is right down the road from us. So uh, if people want to check out your uh, films, your books, where do people find them? Yeah, at michaelcrisponline.com. And just give us about a month or so and we'll see that new film come out? That's right. Michael, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate what you're doing for our state and keep telling those good stories. Will do.